In the future, the Earth is ravaged by a war between the religious and secular world. Forced underground, the Hawks, people of religious conviction, plot and plan their revenge. But the supercomputer who controls the world, Mother, has a paramilitary force at her command to hunt them down and destroy them. They are the Faith Seekers. Now, you tried to do the worst possible thing that can be done to a man, to take away his faith. Now it's my turn. I'm going to take away something of yours. I have the Lord on my side. Mother does not know where you are. I understand. It's a horrible, horrible thing. But the children must be killed. I am Mother. She wants you to sacrifice yourself for her. Mother knows where I am. They'll be here soon. They've no idea where you are. The cleansing has been a complete success. Faith seekers are tanks. They are relentless and will never stop until they have destroyed all those who believe in a god. Hmm. I'm going to have to take a little look in a minute. See what the heart of an unbeliever looks like. I wonder, what colour will it be? Black, I expect. Faith Seekers by Greg James Available now on Amazon and Lulu Paperback or ebook Download it now Welcome to Doctor Who on Target Podcast where we discuss the target range of classic Doctor Who novelizations from the 1970s and 80s. Those long ago days where, if you missed Doctor Who on TV, you missed it forever. Unless, of course, you bought the target novelization. So, join us, jump aboard the TARDIS, set the time rotor for late 20th century Earth, and with a wheezing, groaning sound, We'll discuss Doctor Who on Target. Hello and welcome to Doctor Who on Target. This is Greg in Swansea. And this is David in Chelmsford. And David, we're actually going to tackle one which we've looked forward to for a little while this week, haven't we? Yes, indeed we are. It's one of actually my very first stories that I read. Not the first, but it was right there. Because I think it is actually a very early target, isn't it? The 17th of January, 1974, the book was published. Right. I think it came out along with the Auton Invasion stroke Spearhead from Space. Oh, and it shows, doesn't it, in that, mm. you know how the targets, when they, they first started, they were much 
meatier books and they got to be towards the end, you know, by by and large, I think, isn't it? And this one, of course, is by Malcolm Halk, who we haven't tackled before, have we? No, we haven't. This is Virgin Territory. Absolutely. Oh, nice little pun there. Very good. Um, so, right, a little bit of anomaly for people who might not be familiar with it, because it confused me, because, I, of course, I'd never seen the um, this story on TV, but it had a different title on TV, of course. It was called Doctor Who and the Silurians. And the Doctor Who bit was actually part of the title, wasn't it? Yes, it was. The only time it ever was. Yeah, yeah. So maybe Stephen Moffat is right in what he's been saying lately. I think the reason that the name changed was when the Target books first started, they had an editor who used to say, oh, no, 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 the readers will never understand what that story is about. So Spearhead from Space became the Auton Invasion. The Silurians became the cave monsters. Uh, Colony in Space became the Doomsday Weapon. He'd just arbitrarily change all the names of everything. Right, Because he felt that's what the readers would appreciate him doing. They did republish this one. I think it was 1992. Right. They they published it as Doctor Who, the Silurians, with photorealistic cover by Alastair Pearson. And you know, it did not seem right. Really? And I've just found it and, oh dear. Sorry to pounce on him so early, but the Chris Achilleos cover oh. is wonderful. There's uh, nothing needs changing. No, the Chris, the Chris Achilleos cover, you know, is, is uh, it's embedded in my memory. It's such a fabulous cover, you know, with the... Uh, the exploding volcanoes, the, um, you know, John Pertwee looking so debonair. He looks quite Roger Moorish a little, actually, doesn't he? He's so I, t- I tell you that that picture, and I'm going to forgive the artist for this, but that picture is actually wrong because that is John Pertwee circa 1972 oh. and not John Pertwee circa 1970. But I think we'll we'll probably let him off of that one because he's got an exploding volcano in there as well because by law if you have a dinosaur in a picture you have to have an exploding volcano <laughs> in the background i think that's the law anyway i i think it is i think i remember reading that <laughs> legislation coming in yeah <laughs> i was about to say i i was a bit um perplexed to wonder where that exploding volcano came from because it's not in the story is it the dinosaur is but the doctor is, but the volcano, no. No, but, but you know, poetic license, dramatic license. Um, but whatever, it, it, it is a, it's a fabulous cover, you know. And I think it's interesting about the titles that you say there, because, um, of course, you know, the Doctor Who fans don't allow that sort of thing, do they? You know, it's got to be set in stone what something is, you know, and... Uh, to have all of this confusion and kerfuffle over the titles, you know, it's it's a lot of it's many a drunken night arguing over this, David. Mm. There? <laughs> but I do feel um, I think what they they were after with the Target uh, series, which I which I loved, you know, with the titles was it, it is true. Doctor Who and the Silurians. I mean, what does that even mean? I mean the vast majority of people i i never learned what silurians or the silurian period was in or if i did i must have i must have fallen asleep in that lesson but right you know so the vast majority of people i thought but you got if you've got the cave monsters well that that's sold isn't it 
Mm, you know. Yes, there are caves and there are monsters. That is literally <laughs> what it's about. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it's strange, actually, because um, you're talking about, you know, we're given that title there, and it's actually quite a complex, in-depth story with um, sort of personal backstories and these mm. social issues brought in. And it's actually mm. quite a deep story, isn't it? And yet we've got on the cover, as you say, chuck a volcano on there, cave monsters, mm -hmm. that'll sell. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's funny, actually. The irony here is um, a handful of the Target books were reprinted in 2011, 2012, and the cave monsters is one of them. And they all had forwards written by uh, either Doctor Who alumni or just very, very famous people. Hmm. And we're doing this because we're trying to get away from him. But guess who wrote the forward for Malcolm, Malcolm Hulk's book? It was Terence Dix. Oh. And he explained that the idea for the Solorians actually came from him. Really? Yes, this is what he claims. Wow. It's quite an interesting forward, and he explains that the Doctor's exile on Earth was a cost-saving measure agreed by a previous production team, which left him and Barry Letts working within a restrictive scenario, not of their own choosing. Right. He bounced this idea off of Malcolm Hulk, who sort of rubbed his chin a bit, and he said, well, that limits you to two possible stories namely mad scientist every week or alien invasion oh. and terence was deeply disappointed that he realized his old friend and mentor was correct but then terence went home and had a think and a little time later he contacted malcolm hulk and he said he'd imagined a third possible plot line in which a species that predated mankind saw him as the invader and wished to claim back its planet oh. Wow. And Mac agreed that this was a concept that he could develop, and thus Doctor Who and the Silurians was born. Gosh, that's absolutely fascinating. I don't think I've read that. It's in the 2011. I've got that when I, I, but I'm afraid, you know, as I'm sure many other Doctor Who fans are, we get them and we keep them in pristine condition sometimes. And uh, actually, you've just brought a memory back because, of course, part of the podcast that we do is all about bringing these lovely memories back of childhood or you know or later and reading these and I remember having these books and loving them and revering them so much that mm. I would always wipe my hands because I didn't want to get fingerprints on them on the pages <laughs> is that you know it's incredible that's quite endearing actually <laughs> yeah <laughs> but what I would do is I would have the book yeah and then I would borrow it from the library and I'd put my paws all over the library book Oh. And I keep mine probably in a paper bag somewhere. Oh wow, that's, that's so I could read it. Yeah, and spoil it. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, I'm yeah, a very very cunning six-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. That's it's true because you've got these. You know, I mean, even though they might have been sort of forty pence or something when they came over originally. You know that was that was a week's pocket money, and um, you you like I say, you know you you loved it. You wanted it kept in that lovely these gorgeous covers. I think they were beautifully presented, and they were something which you really wanted to look after. So we're talking a little bit about you. So you've given a little bit of background, David. Um, mm. So it's John Pertwee's first season, isn't it? As you mentioned, the haircut, doesn't it? 
the second story of the first season. And of course, we, we to, just to set it in context, I think it's worth mentioning that when Malcolm Hulk's book comes out in January 74, Pertwee himself is still on the throne. Yes, yes, yeah. And I don't know if you felt this, but I felt that some of the mellower later Pertwee characteristics came through in the book when they probably weren't evident on the television version because the character or the performance or the portrayal wasn't as far evolved yes these early days a bit of the charm of the character comes through that perhaps doesn't come through on the telly did you feel that it was the older doctor who was being written about yes yeah i i do agree with you there actually there is a, because there is a variance in the portrayal i think as there is with all the doctors as the seasons <laughs> progress isn't there um, especially the ones who've done did it for a long time like tom baker of course there's i think there are three distinct sort of eras of what he's acting like i'm going to press you on this for the three ages of tom baker I, I would say, you know, for you, for, for Tom Baker, it was the wonderful, madcap, bohemian, intense, gothic period, wasn't it? Oh, the Hinchcliffe era. The yeah. Hinchcliffe era. And then we went into that um, sort of Harpo Marx comedic era, which would be, who was the producer? Graham then? Williams. Graham Williams, of course. And then it it did a dramatic about turn when John Nathan Turner came in and we had quite a, a brooding, sombre, curtailed Doctor, I think. No, that's a really good summation of how the character changed. And I think it's true also to say that John Pertwee's performance at the end was a lot different to how it was at the beginning because, of course, he'd been playing it for the best part of five years. Mm. It's interesting. Would you, would you say then with... So this is right to the beginning, and you said about that character portrayal, because I remember, I think this second season, did it end with the demons? The second, the second season did, yes. Now, I remember being rather taken... Because the demons I utterly adore, and when we review that, I'll, I'll, I'll talk more. But I do remember seeing the video um, version of it for the first time, and I was rather taken aback by how abrupt and nasty John Pertwee's portrayal was in it a lot of the time. He was quite disdainful of people's not understanding things. I think, yes, I think the word that you'd say about the early Pertwee Doctor is that he's quite caustic, isn't he? Yes, that's the yeah great description, caustic. He was, wasn't he? And it doesn't really show in this portrayal. You're saying we've got the softer Doctor of a bit later. Yes, I think in this book we have. He's Pertwee in 74 and Pertwee in 70 all at once. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. So, David, your, your first reading of this of this story then um so or your first encounter with it actually was it on tv or was it the the, the target no version? it's absolutely the hardback target book from the library ah right i didn't own this one for many years yeah and this one was when i got slightly later in life right right yeah, yeah. and what yeah. do what do you what are your memories of that well it was actually a harder read than the ones terence used to write yeah yeah I can only really think of one theme. Having reviewed the book now, I can only see one theme in the whole thing, and that's xenophobia. Mm. But the way that it's portrayed is very nuanced, and there are loads of different pieces that make up that, or that, that establish that theme in my mind. Right. 
and um, it, it's actually there. Are, I suppose there is a political subtext to this story, as there is with anything that Malcolm Holt does. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I, I suppose I saw a lot of strands in it, but only one theme, which which is the xenophobia, which is pretty much a two way street. Right. Because the Silurians hate mankind, and mankind hates them, and the Doctor is piggy in the middle, trying to stop the two sides from wiping each other out. Yes, yeah. It, it's, I, I do, I mean, you mentioned there about it being a much harder read, and I remember thinking of this book, as I said, as a, as a denser, more, more adult, I suppose, mm. um, uh, you know, writing of the story. And I do remember um, the sort of, I, I mean, I loved all of the, the fact that uh, it was action packed as well that we had. It was quite, uh, it was quite intense, a lot of it, you know, I, I felt, you know, quite claustrophobic. The idea, you know, we got, we got the Silurian monster, not only in the caves, but at one stage he's being kept in the cellar. We've got the political goings on there we have the the old boys network don't we of the um what is his name the in charge of the is it dr lawrence dr lawrence who's in charge isn't it yes and we we had fulton mckay giving a top-notch performance in the tv series as dr quinn did you mm. did you like his performance in there very much so in fact the dynamic between dr quinn and um what's her name phyllis dawson yes that's right yes that character dynamic sets the book up a slightly more adult yeah than had it been written by terence dix yes yeah there's deviousness there's mm. there's obviously a sexual subtext to all of it yeah there's manipulation mm. i mean the pair of them both see themselves as victims of their parents yeah in, in her case the victim of a seemingly immortal old mother yes. in his case he's always in the shadow of his famous scientist's father yes yeah so they're both victims they're both essentially quite bitter people but there is a a tiny little passage in it towards the beginning when you know in, in, in illustration of how much miss dawson wishes to associate with dr quinn she tells him that she'd be glad to decorate his cottage and make curtains for it and cook and clean for him oh, if he desired. Yeah. And the nice smile, Dr. Quinn declines these offers, but says he'd be very happy for Miss Dawson to visit at any time as a guest. Oh. This is sexual equality. This is this is all good stuff. Yeah. You read a bit further into the book, and it turns out that Dr. Quinn's got uh, feet of clay. Yes. She quite conniving and quite manipulative. Yes. But she isn't to say that she isn't a willing victim, because she is. Yeah, yeah. She's sort of like his henchman. Yeah, it's quite it's interesting, isn't it? it could, I think the depth of these characters is, uh, you know, it's it's not not without precedent in, in Target books, but it's up there as some of the most in-depth character portrayals, do you think? I, th I think so. And, and it also introduced a couple of things, because... I don't know how easy it was for you to read, but he talks about the discovery of a celiacanth. Yeah. I wouldn't have known what a celiacanth was. No. I still don't, but uh, oh. it's in the book. So, but he says he's sort of saying, well, you know who discovered steam and gravity and yeah. evolution and electricity? Yeah. 
but you don't know who discovered the Celia accounts. That's fascinating because that's uh, I I, call, I remember <laughs> I know it's, I, I remember telling my children about this and I called it a dinosaur fish because yeah. uh, it's more you know a Celia account. I couldn't have even read that you know I, I wouldn't have you know I, I agree with you I had no idea what it was you know but you know that goes to show the. Is it is it the respect that they give to the reader in this, or is it the fact they don't talk down to you? Is it, or they know is it, he knows it's a children's book? Yes, he he must know it's a children's book, but I think he wants to fire people's imaginations as to what a Celia Count might be. There's a there's another bit in it um, when uh, the Doctor mentions Yong. Is it Yong? Yes, if, if philosopher. Yeah, the the yeah. Oh, and he says to the brigadier, "Do you know what you know?" Yong says on this topic. Oh, you mean the psychologist fellow? <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh, it's the memory that animals inherit. The brigadier it all gets a bit intellectual, and the brigadier closes the paragraph, losing his patience. Oh. So they're sort of showing off, aren't they, with their knowledge? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> says Liz how a dog circles before it sits because it thinks it lives in long grass still I I absolutely love all of that David you see because I remember being educated with this you know finding it because you said you know about wanting to fire the imagination it certainly did mine I might not have been able to have looked up a, a Celia camp you know but um, I certainly remember coming across these um, these theories, these understandings, these scientific, um, you know, views of things. And I remember loving all of that. It was really sort of giving me that feeling, gosh, this I'm finding out so much here. This is great. Um, I, I, yeah, I, re- I, I think I remember that one with the dog and finding out about that. Quinn also says, um, do you remember Professor D.E. Hughes? And and he says to Miss Dawson, he says, I bet you thought Marconi invented radio. Now, I never thought Marconi invented radio because I live in the home of Marconi, in the home of wireless. Oh. But I'm going to find out about D. Hughes now and his invention of radio in 1879. Had a primitive transmitter in Great Portland Street, London. Really? See, I didn't know any of this. No, no. From beyond the grave is edifying me. Yeah. That's it. I, lo- I love that expression you've used, David. Yeah, edifying you. It, it, and, and it is. And that's what I always remember. I mean, we've mentioned before that I always felt a lot of the Target books gave me a real moral compass and understanding of the world. And I think with these... Because I know they that Terence Dix and um, Barry Letts purposefully wanted to give people a scientific background and education. Didn't they used to read serious scientific journals because they wanted their ideas and things to be realistic, didn't they? Or or, yes. or maybe not realistic, but at least based on real science and things which people could look at and get a feel for, you know? Because um, I, I, I'm sure I remember them doing something once. I think, what was the... Um, what was that wonderful one where they would drill into the Earth's core? Inferno, wasn't it? Yeah, that I remember that was based on something which was actually going on, wasn't it? You know, mm. and, yeah. We do have this fusion here, don't we, of it's still great action adventure with monsters and things, but all the time it's sort of seeped 
in knowledge, in understanding, in in different perceptions and views. I mean, the quality of this writing, I think, is 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 top notch. Would you agree, yeah. David, or do you think it's? I totally agree. I mean, looking. I mean, staying with the characters of Matthew Quinn and Phyllis Dawson. There's a point where she sort of uh, loses her nerve. Mm-hmm. and says, I'm going to tell the Brigadier or Major Parker or whoever everything. And Dr. Quinn says, if you do, I shall tell them about you. Ooh. And she says, what do you mean? And he said, it's very simple. I shall say you found the creatures, that you swore me to secrecy, and I finally decided to denounce you. Oh. And he said, this is really, really wicked. Yeah. And she says, then they'll have to decide which one of us is telling the truth. And she says, I don't tell lies. And he says, I know that, but do they? Oh, what a fabulous... So manipulative. That, do you know, it struck me because when I heard um, I, I heard this part being narrated again, I actually remembered going back to that as a child reading this and remembering, gosh, this is, this is such a huge concept, you know, of doing all the, these political machinations, you know, it's just, it was so new and shocking. Mm-hmm. And I always felt, I don't know, I do this, you might laugh at me for this, but I I always felt when these things were done in there, because that's so, you know, um, it's so penetrating in its understanding of the realities of human nature. Mm-hmm. That I always felt that people who loved these books, like, I, I think, you know, later on we had um, um, Alan Bleasdale's GBH which mm. was an incredible um, look at the political goings-on in, in Britain. And um, we had Russell T. Davis doing things like, um, what was one, the Children of Earth one, wasn't it? With all these sorts of political, um, mm. uh, you know, lies and cheats going on. And I always think, you know, did they, were they inspired by these? Do they look back at these? Do they understand these things as a as a little bit of inspiration to... Our growing up, if you like, if our, of our concept of thinking the world isn't really a wonderful, innocent place that we might think of it as a child, if we're lucky to live, you know, and allowed to be like that. But these are the realities of the world. Am I, am I pushing too much onto this, do you think? No, I don't think you are at all. I think, you know, I, th- I think that there are passages in this book that are lessons to children about, as you say, human nature... Mm. And certainly duplicity, yeah, and manipulation, yeah. These are not very innocent concepts, mm. yeah. Because it sort of pushes her to the brink to sort of bring her back and say, "But if you don't do that, we can share the discovery." So he sort of tempts her, reels her back in, yeah. having put down the insubordination. It's incredible stuff, isn't it? It really is. Uh... It's wonderful. So I remember reading this, you know, and listening to it again, I I felt, you know, I, I didn't need to put my child's head on at all. I thought it was all rather, you know, rather adult. It was, it, it's incredible stuff, really mm-hmm. good. So we, we've got this story, the quality of the writing, I don't think is, is in doubt, you know, it's a great Malcolm Hulk uh, story. What about the, the, just the, actual story side of it the plausibility of it what what do you think about that well i well obviously it's implausible 
the story, the idea that Homo reptilia existed. Right. Seems a bit far-fetched, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I'm not a scientist, you see. I suppose evolution took some specific turns, but it could have taken different ones. I'm not quite sure how... Well, as I say, I'm not a scientist, which I think is part of the problem. But these these are obviously... This is suggesting that... I guess it's suggesting that the ultimate evolution was from these lizards, but that got halted in its tracks because they all went to hibernate mm. and that monkeys took over. Yeah, yeah. So the monkeys that were grossly inferior as a species to Homo reptilia, yeah. Homo reptilia dropped the ball and the monkeys caught up and to an extent surpassed them. Yeah. yeah. It's only the fact that the monkeys have now started to tinker with the Earth's crust, yeah. it's woken Homo reptilia back up. And I also think it's quite strange how we've recently understood, you know, how the dinosaurs, I mean, I know they're not dinosaurs, but how the dinosaurs were wiped out. And I've seen a lot of documentaries saying that if it weren't for that um, that meteor hitting the earth and destroying it to such an extent that all the dinosaurs and the creatures of that era were wiped out. That allowed mammals to develop and grow, didn't it? And uh, Mm. for them to, uh, because they were obviously sort of kept in check while the dinosaurs ruled and um, it allowed them to go. So I thought it may be fantastical, but it's got ideas and concepts there. Mm. which you can sort of look at to sort of keep that imagination fire in. Like, mm. what what did you think of the, the about the moon? Even as a child, I I thought that was incredible to think, actually. Because I remember thinking, you know, but the moon is there, that's what something is. But, of course, it gives you this concept of, no, things change, things move, mm. you know, mm. this, this is... The moon's there now, but it wasn't there before. It's become captive in the earth. And we, we don't always have that um, universal view of things, do we, in, in literature? Well, I, I suppose the idea of modern writing is to be as entertainment-filled and fast-moving as possible. And there's not always time to actually dwell on the background or any concept underpinning anything. But this book, I I, I don't know if it's true, but I read... That it was 45,000 words. What I, I suppose what I'm saying is Malcolm Hulk's allowed himself enough words to develop these concepts and to put some flesh on the bones was perhaps the television story. I, I see this story, it's almost as if he said, well, I'm not going to get seven episodes into this book. So what he's done is he's very carefully reconstructed it told some bits that you saw on television as flashbacks or as conversations, has picked all the best bits out of the television, but has mainly made it a character piece. Yeah, yeah. Because the other fantastic character in there is Major Barker. Oh, yes, I love Major Barker's character. And uh, I, um, it's interesting because you, you swing from one emotion to the next with him. You know, I, I found on one minute I... I was sort of sympathetic. Well, I don't know if I should say that really, but I I I understood his feelings towards um, the brigadier and the doctor, and thinking they were traitors, and his you know wanting to protect because he is that military man who's 
narrow-minded. He's, mm-hmm. you know, he, he has to have, you know, those things under control. There are quite a few statements in there that would show his, you know, his view of the world is very simple and straightforward and that's how things are, you know. <laughs> and uh, But it's almost to the point that you think, but this man, you know, believes this this is what he's been led to believe he's all about doing his job to the best of his ability and I don't know if I'm being too sympathetic to him but sometimes I did feel you know you you know you poor old thing (laughs) you know you're sort of you're caught up in a world here which you have no concept of no understanding and it's it's beyond your ability but if you were given a job to do then by gosh, you would do it. Mm. Do you think, or have I gone, or am I, am I being too sympathetic? I think the the good thing about the character of Major Barker, is, and and again, this is uh, something that perhaps has happened previously with Malcolm Hulk. On a couple of occasions, he's very explicitly made the bad guy, the bloke from the army. Uh-huh. He does it in uh, Dinosaur Invasion. Oh, yes. Does it in Ambassadors of Death, because he's one of the principal rewriters of david whittaker's script yeah so so you think oh he's a he's an army man therefore in malcolm hulk's universe he's a bad man yeah. but he isn't is he not yeah. entirely i yeah. doctor actually whispers to liz he says that's a very brave man liz yeah i think he says that when he's refusing food when he's in the solurian's cage yes so even the doctor has to take his hat off to him a bit, but he does. He has a very black and white view of the world, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah. This catchphrase, which is, it's as plain as a pike staff. <laughs> and I love that. Me too. Pike staff is basically a stick. Yeah, with a spike on the end. But yeah, it is. That's pretty plain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I love that because it's the sort of language which he would use. He's obviously... Um, you know, his world is one of, of weapons and history and so forth. Mm-hmm. So to, to use that as an example fits him perfectly, doesn't it? The thing about Major Barker is that he's very much Malcolm Hulk's mouthpiece. Because there's that bit where the Doctor's quizzing him as to who's doing the sabotage. Yes. He says communists as if it's an obvious answer. It's great, says right? Chinese communists or Russian communists. <laughs> there's no difference between them. And if it isn't them, it's the fascists or the Americans. Yes. Because Malcolm Hook himself is a communist. And and communists in probably early 70s England are very much bogeymen, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. And sort of like the wartime fear of the fifth column. Oh, yes, and absolutely. We, yes, yeah, they are. This was really of the time as well, wasn't it, you know, to put this point across? Because there was this sort of a bit of a culture clash going on, wasn't it? I, I don't know if it started in the... Was it in the 60s? No, it was more likely with the 50s. I mean, you're very au fait with, with the theatre world, David. Um, in America, you had uh, McCarthy hmm. rooting out communists. Yes. Famously, Arthur Miller writes a play about it called The Crucible. Oh, wow. And it's an allegory of 50s America. Yeah. And But he sets it in the Salem Witch Trials and he makes his point, he makes his political point, but using a historical context. So, so yes, yes, the fear of communism runs all through the Cold War. Yes, yeah. It's really interesting that we have that in here because, of course, it comes to bear 
You know, you know when when you mentioning about um, Barker being uh, Hulk's mouthpiece as well, and that anybody in the army is evil. Because of course, we have the antithesis of his character really in the Brigadier, don't we? I would say that there's not a lot between them actually, and oh. this is this is the funny thing. I think again, coming back to what we were said earlier about the evolution of the characters. The way Malcolm Holt writes the Brigadier in this book, he's sort of become the lovable oaf Brigadier oh. of later years, hasn't he? Yeah. But actually, there's a bit quite near the beginning when, when they're talking about the cheap atomic energy and the Brigadier says, that'll show them. Oh. And everyone says, show whom? And he says, you know, foreign competitors. This will make Britain great again. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's bang up to date, David. So he's a huge patriot, isn't he, the Brigadier? Yeah, yeah. And no one seems impressed with his answer except Liz. <laughs> so the Brigadier's got low-level patriotic rumblings at the beginning of the book, but they're absolutely played out through Barker. Yeah, you know, you, you, I've changed my mind now. I shouldn't have said he's the antithesis. He's, he's not, no. I think, yes, I think the Brigadier's an oaf, but he's... Yeah. He's our kind yeah, of oaf, that's right, and that's yeah. the difference. <laughs> it's fascinating. Whereas Barker, we see, is a demonstrably dangerous man because of his temper. Yes, yeah, absolutely. He's ruled by his heart, whereas the Brigadier is more ruled by his head. Yeah. Plus, the Brig is more inclined to obey orders. Yes, well, I was thinking, you know, because obviously we got, when we get to the end of the story about the, the Brigadier's actions there, which... Uh, you know the doctor is very, very um, upset about, isn't it? But we'll, we'll we'll talk a bit more about that at the end. But I think something I'd like to mention, going right to the beginning of this book, I I love some of the you know you mentioned earlier about Malcolm Hulk sort of fleshing it out with bits that weren't in the TV series. But we've also got it starts off with um, the wonderful reading of the changing face of Doctor Who. Oh, do you remember those, David? Yes, I do. Yeah, because of course, did they did they bring those in because they thought maybe readers wouldn't understand the concept of the Doctor? Mm, I think they did. Yes. Yeah, and it's, it was lovely to hear that again because, um, as I say, you know, um, Caroline John, her reading of this, I I think it was delightful. I I think it was delightful. I really enjoyed her reading of it. I, I loved it, and I wanted to ask you what you thought of her reading of the story as well, because of course she is actually a character in the story as well, and she's Liz, she's Liz Shaw. But also, could we talk about the soundscape at the same time? Because I'm, we, it's a subject we like to talk about, and I want to know what you think of this. Yes, well, what I was going to say in terms of Caroline John. I think it was a very capable delivery of the various characters and it was a huge sadness to me all the way through knowing that since recording it she died. Yes. Because I think it robbed the audio range of one of its better readers. Yes, yeah. I know she got to record three of her four televised stories and we've got Ambassadors of Death coming up. But anyway, yes, she's she's really, really good as a reader yeah. She um, sort of listened to her at a very technical level this time because I noticed when she had characters with a one-liner, 
she would indulge herself by giving them quite an exaggerated comic voice. She did, didn't she? Yeah, and that one of the things which prompted me to say it was quite a delightful reading because I felt she was delighting in it a little bit. She was I thought, enjoying yes, it, I, think, I thought. I think that came came through. There's a bit when they go, when they're descending into the research centre and the guard is operating the lift button and he says, next stop Australia. There's a bit later yeah, when someone's yeah. got a, a one-liner when the nurse, he says, you must let us help you. Oh, yes, yes. And we have the lift. Um, who's the person who gives a lift to masters? He's called Jock Tangai. It's like tangy with an E on the end. Oh, yes, yeah. Jock Tangy. Coming back to Malcolm Hulk, he was absolutely... He was the working man, wasn't he? Because yes. he'd never been asked to drive his hire car to London before. In all his years in the business, he was taking people to the shops for 50p a throw. Yes, yes. And then this guy comes along and offers him 20 quid. <laughs> so he lets his tea go cold because that's what the working man does when the ruling class needs a lift to London. Yeah. <laughs> and he's the victim because he contracts the disease. And through splashing down the shallow end of capitalism, he dies. You know, he's a huge loss to Peterborough's taxi fraternity, I'm sure. He's been sucked in, hasn't he? I mean, mm. I felt so sorry for the man. He was, well, he was the little man just trying to earn a shilling. You've really, you've you've analysed that to a really in-depth. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually. And I, I don't disagree with what you've said at all. That's really interesting. That's, uh, yeah, it is, isn't it? And these are these... Uh, these little things that you're pointing out, they they got these little pulses going through, and they keep reminding us of, we might be reading a book which might be science fiction or fantasy, or but actually we be in just get these pulses of reality going through us all the time, isn't it? The other side of that story is the fact that Masters believes he's so important that he can disobey any rule, mm. jump mm. off of the train when it suits him, yeah. requisition a car. Because he is, you know, he is, as as a member of the ruling classes, he's so damned important. Yeah, yeah. He's so focused on what he thinks he needs to do. Yes, yeah. And he's got the, he's a, he's a horrible character. And I, oh, and I really disliked the way his bullying enjoyment comes out in the way that he treats um, Dr. Lawrence. They have a connection, don't they? They've been... They were in the same private school together, weren't they? And he says Dr. Lawrence calls him Freddy. Yes. Which is obviously how he was known at the school. Yes, yeah. Master's face falls just for a fraction of a second because he's rather dropped Freddy these days and wants to be called Frederick. And so it's just pure snobbery because... He's very, very, very important, and Dr. Lawrence clearly isn't. Absolutely, yes. Oh, it, it's it's horrible. And the way it's... Um, I think we mentioned before, you know, about bullying. It's such a horrible, awful thing. And it, it takes you straight back to the, to the playground, obviously. But, of course, this is bringing the playground into a country's politics, isn't it? You know, this is showing they they can't like you said about the sense of self-importance with which they feel they they have, and it's just carried on right throughout it, regardless of what anybody else says. They 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 stand above them as if they are superior, and it's beautifully done. I mean, clearly 
You mentioned earlier, David, you know, that a lot of the things in here are close to Malcolm Hulk's heart, you know, that he's he's getting his um, views and things across. And I, But I think he does it very, very well. I don't think he's inaccurate, do you think? The other thing I was going to say about Masters is he actually does get his comeuppance because not only is, is he one of the first to die from this horrible illness, the Doctor bursts his bubble really well yes and it, it's like the doctor is 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 becomes the working man taking this man a, down a peg or two yes yeah and there's a bit where miss travis brings in coffee which is intended for masters but the doctor assumes it's for him oh. and says you know you really do look after us <laughs> dr lawrence kicks up on behalf of masters yeah and he says how appallingly thoughtless of me here it's yours handing him with a half drunk cup <laughs> <laughs> it's a lovely scene isn't it it was a, a and I did find myself, even though this book is, as I said, quite a, a dense, meaty book and more of an adult level, it's full of lovely moments, isn't it? I, 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 I really like um, something I, I, I went. I, I thought there was a lovely um, sort of camaraderie between the Doctor and Liz Shaw. I thought I, I really liked that, you know. But can I also mention, after we have the change in face of Doctor Who, we have this... Now, this wasn't in the TV series again, was it? The, this atmospheric prologue. And it's really great. It's, 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 it's from his point of view, the Silurian's point of view. And I've forgotten the Silurian's name, you see, David, again. But Well, that's an interaction between Ockdell and Morker. Yes. With Cato on the sidelines. Ah. Oh. And so you have three male representatives of Silurian society. Yeah. No females, no same-sex relationships in this era. Although it could be a menage a trois, I suppose. <laughs> Probably isn't, yeah. <laughs> and so you have Ockdell, who's the older, wiser Silurian, although he's a bit flawed, but still seems more open to reason than some. Mm, yes. You've got the young firebrand, Morker, who makes no secret of his hatred for the apes. Yes. And you have the scientist, Cato, who tends to side with whichever one of the other two is winning at any given yes. time. Yes, yeah. And the, as you say, it is really good the way the prologue sets the scene up. It's lovely. It's so atmospheric. And the lovely little... I love the way he said it was the, something like the last time he felt the sun on his scales. Something oh, like that. yeah. Isn't that great? Really? Yeah, I love that. And then the way they, they refer... It's quite interesting because the snobbery and superiority which you um, were, were um, talking about uh, masters displaying, in a way, we have that sort of parallel with these talking about the... The little furry animals, he says, isn't it? They've all got fleas. They've all got fleas. I mean, he might not be wrong. You know, he might very well have <laughs> fleas. But uh, but the way they treat them with such sort of disgust. You said about the last time Ockdell felt the sun on his scales. Well, when he dies, when the two third eyes before him turn brilliant red yeah. and the pain races through his old limbs, yeah. for a moment he remembers himself as a tiny reptile baby breaking out from his egg. And his mind goes blank and he's dead. Do you know, David, it is so good. It was absolutely beautiful, that moment. I, I thought, what a... Because, of course, we, we do have this, um, you know, we have the, you know, your life flashing before your eyes. We have, we, we well, it's, you know, it's a well-known sort of literary device, I suppose. But mm. 
done here from this point of view it's a beautiful touch to do i i just thought, i felt quite moved by it it was it was lovely yes he has a premonition that he hasn't got long left anyway mm. and just decides to say what's on his mind yeah yeah it's so beautiful and carol and john read it beautifully i thought as well i i've got a few a few of the other points i'd like to make as well we we have lovely atmospheres the soundscape of course you, you were happy with the soundscape david i assume i was very happy with the soundscape clearly caroline john's voice is treated when she does the silurian characters yeah. but she seems to um well vary the tone and give each one a personality and i'm glad they let her do it but now they'd just get nick briggs in to do it wouldn't they they would they would yes I, I was anticipating, as I was listening to it, I, I thought Dave is going to be happy with this because I'm very, very happy. Some of these early audio go ones, I think they're just so well done, aren't they? They're I very do. professional, very atmospheric. And like I said, I love that. It's it's um, Caroline John doing the voices, a little bit of treatment on. It's like we had in The Giant Robot. We had... Um, the, the robot being treated a little bit with the voice there. It's, it's great. Much, much better. It doesn't drag you out of the story and the atmosphere and the feeling, does it? I have to say, it's a treat to listen to. I really like that. Mm. Um, also, um, you know, going back to the, um, the the Master's character, you know, I, I just noticed a note I made which I thought beautifully showed his sneering snobbery you know and he says about uh master saying about the general he's got he was bitten by a lizard he said sarcastically <laughs> do you remember that bit that was he did and and caroline john did it so well she really put that you know nasal sarcasm in there you know they were saying what's the matter with the general because he, said, he was bitten by a lizard <laughs> you know <laughs> it was really beautifully done in in terms of technical presentation, the bit I have to raise. Yeah. Now there's a bit where Private Robbins throws himself to his death mm. down a chasm. Now yeah. in a modern release, can you imagine all of the screaming oh. and the echo? Yeah. And everything that would be lumped onto that yeah. scene. But here it isn't. No. We'd have a hugely drawn out death cry in a modern release. Yes. We'd probably have him hit the chasm wall several times on the way down. And then go chunk at the bottom. <laughs> it, it would be we'd have all of that and then we'd have a big bass thundering bump <laughs> as it hit the floor, wasn't it? It was, yeah, it's... Uh, and we don't like we we want things more professional. We want to enjoy the presentation of um, these books, don't we? We don't. I don't think either of us wants all of that nonsense. I call it with all this <laughs> sound put on. I have to say, not that some of the new ones have not been beautifully produced, but there was certainly a tendency they waver in the middle. Some of them, don't they, with that overdoneness? I think, but yeah, very pleased with that. Um, what about um, another little bit of characterization which he gets in, which I, I thought was interesting? Um, it caught me out, actually. The doctor recognising an FN-303 rifle ammunition. And I thought, hold on, he's not Sherlock Holmes to do that. And I thought the characterization is wrong. But, of course, then it goes on to say 
that of course he he works in unit he's surrounded by these guys of course he would know that isn't it ah yes true yes so of course first of all i th- i thought that doesn't ring true but then it does ring true so david some of the you know you know i love the chapters you know the chapter titles um we, we we've already mentioned of course you know um that quite a bit of it is shown from various people's point of view. Like we've got Morka's point of view, isn't it, in Chapter 8, titled Into an Alien World. And that's really interesting because, of course, it's the alien world of, of us, of humanity, that he moves in, but it's done from his point of view, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, yes. Very clever touch yeah, yeah. to have a whole chapter from his perspective. I like that a lot. Going into... um. Uh, the well, the the ending of of what happens. We know that, of course, the Silurians are are thwarted by by the doctors um, working out a cure for the for the virus and so forth. Mm. We we know, of course, that um, the sacrifices are, are made. You know, um, uh, in the loss of life to protect humanity, but the brigadiers destruction of them with that explosion at the end what what did you think of that david well he, he it's less extreme than it was on the telly because he sort of seals them in rather than blows them up yeah as a consequence the doctor's reaction to what he's done is more muted but he he just is obeying his orders isn't he yeah yeah it's interesting because it was one which did cause a bit of a bit of an outcry about in in fandom is it about that you know but um yeah, it's just interesting, and I I like the way that it it ends quite. It is more muted in the target version, but it ends quite quickly after that, isn't it? Mm. It sort of echoes what's happened. I think mm. you know, I love that. Sorry, David, I just caught sight of some of these um, some of these other chapter titles which I love, and we've got um, some titles like the traitor, the fighting monster into the caves you know it's lovely isn't it and some of them are really prosaic actually quinn visits his friends that's a sort of <laughs> that's a sort of a it's, it's an ir- ironic title of course isn't it but is there one that says goodbye dr quinn oh there is yes actually chapter 12 killed. yes that's really it's, it's that's, a sad moment when quinn goes because he's one of the better characters him and barker are absolutely the highlights of this book yeah yeah it's fascinating. And, of course, we've got Man from the Ministry, Attack and Counter-Attack. I like this one, The Itch. That's interesting. That itch, yeah, needs a scratch, and that all goes horribly wrong. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. And, of course, the cha- we've got 19 chapters in this book. It is a bit mm. of a big book, isn't it? It is a big book. Yeah. And the final chapter, chapter 19, The Lie. Mm. Yes, because Liz deceives the Doctor. Do you know, I, I, I don't want to end on a criticism, but I actually, one thing which struck me when I was reading this as a child, and I still think it's very, very effective, is that wonderful um, line where I think it's the Brigadier, I'm not sure who says, about um, when first the victims are in the hospital sick bay and they say about they've sort of lost their mind and they're doing cave drawings of these strange creatures on the wall. And I thought that's a lovely. I can't remember what the word for it is, but what what is it when it's sort of back into your, you know, the species history? It's in the genes, sort of thing, isn't it? Race memory. Race memory. That's it, dude. Thank you for that. Yeah, 
I thought that was a great idea. That stuck with me. I love that. And I did think when Caroline John said the line in this, I think she missed the dramatic intensity of it. I think it was said a little bit. I remember listening to it thinking, oh, no, you you didn't give that the sort of dramatic importance I I would have felt for it. So, um, But that's the only criticism I've got, really, you know, because I remember loving that line, you know, because it's got a bit of quake de mass in it. It's got a bit of sort of Nigel Neal type science fiction to it, isn't it, you know? Mm. Okay, David, should we go for a score for this? Do you want to go first? Well, yes, I think it's as plain as a pike staff that this audio deserves a whopping nine out of ten from me. Oh, I'm so glad you said that Mm. because um, that's exactly what I've got written down here is um, a huge nine out of ten, as big as a pike staff. (laughs) So we're agreed then. This is a really, really good entry oh. into the target audiobook range or oh, you you cannot be a doctor who and specifically target book fan without reading this one and having it in your collection oh you have to have this one in your collection yeah and the audiobook which is fantastic it, it is it's a it's a real again it's it's, it's a beautiful um mm. uh, you know package that fabulous achilles cover um mm. there's there's not much you can criticize about this story no. David. There's very little. It's well written. It's an adult crossover. It's a sort of a young adult book. It's written at a decent level. You learn things from it. It's a great reading from Caroline John. As I say, so, so sad that she's no longer with us. It is, it is. And I'll tell you something else that you might agree with me over. Yeah. Doing these retrospective reviews is great fun. So maybe, shall we do, another, would you like to do a, uh, a newish one or another classic? No, I want to do another classic. Go on, David, you name it. As I said, I've been leading to this. We've done Doctor Who and the Giant Robot, very, very early Tom Baker. We've done Doctor Who and the Silurians, very, very early John Pertwee. So what we need is a very, very early Patrick Troughton. And how would you fancy doing a review of The Highlanders? Well, that would be fascinating because I've never read it. I'm going to come to this completely fresh. And we'll, um, well, we'll get that one out um, very soon. Please tweet us at Doctor Who on Target. That's DR Who on Target. Or email us at DoctorWhoOnTarget at gmail.com. That's the end of this episode. And I would like to thank BBC Audio and Penguin Random House for kindly supplying us with preview copies. And to Smerin's Antisocial Club for the use of their version of the Doctor Who theme tune. The biggest thank you goes to you, our listeners. Oh,